Well, good morning. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? I got to go to uh, Nashville to see my daughter and her, uh, son, my son-in-law, I guess. It's not just her husband. I guess we are connected. Um, how many of you watch Nashville? Oh, really? Somebody does. You know the Blue Cafe in Nashville? That's where my son-in-law works. I don't know how he got a job there, but it's pretty cool. Anyway, we got to go and listen to country music. Not a bad way to spend a Friday night after Thanksgiving. Anyway, but we missed you Sunday, and I heard it was an awesome day. Larry did a great job. It was a great time of worship, so I'm excited to be back. Uh, yesterday was the women's tea. Um, who, who, where is Tracy and the people who put that? Awesome. You guys were great. They filled that place up. People heard the gospel. One of the best things that happens. So thanks. That was nice. Um, I was having uh, coffee with a friend and they were asking me if I was discouraged about what was happening at Waterstone because of the financial challenge we face at the end of this year. And it's a large number. We need to make up well over $100,000. And I told them, they asked me, "Are, are you losing sleep? And I said, no, I'm not discouraged. I'm not losing sleep. Uh, Part of that is I've been around here for 30 years and God's always been faithful. I don't think he's going to shut the doors on us. Uh, um, You know, we've been through tough times before. But but beyond that, I'm not discouraged for a number of reasons because in in a sense, what I am is challenged and praying. Um, And I'll I'll tell you why. Three reasons. Um, One... When I look at the ministry of Waterstone right now, I see God's fingerprints all over this place. Um, And I'm excited about it. I look at this last year, and it's been a fantastic year. We've had over 500 people in small groups for both small groups campaigns, and and they've been great groups, and and you have wrestled through tough stuff. I mean, we talked about Modern Family and 1 Corinthians and Amos. Those were not easy things, and people really engaged that, and I saw God at work in the midst of that. That is exciting to me. I look at our youth ministry, and it's growing significantly. Paul and Elliot are doing just a fabulous job, and I'm excited about the staff. We've added Jennifer Smith in mobilization, and Sarah Lloyd's taken over Children's Kingdom. Uh, children's ministry and it's just fabulous what's going on in those places so I look at our staff and we're developing leaders and justice and action is going great and and it's awesome I I can't think of a better time of effective ministry at Waterstone so I see God at work and I'm excited about where we're going this next year Um, we're going to start a new service in February on Saturday nights and that that'll be awesome at least one person's coming (laughs) <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> uh, um, I'm really excited about that. Uh, we're we're going to start talking about Psalms uh, in, in this next campaign. And then um, Larry talked me into doing the book of Revelation. Um, so one of our, yeah, you'll say that now. I'm not sure you will later. <laughs> so, so, so that's encouraging. We're going to keep our focus on prayer. We're going to try to establish a better understanding of worship as a church. Uh, um, it's just going to be a fabulous year that I'm really excited about. So God's at work um, all, all, all over this place. Second reason I'm, I'm challenged, not discouraged, is the reason we're behind is because we made, in some ways, a risky kingdom decision. We decided over a year ago to plant a church bridgeway. And we knew that when we did that, that would be a challenge because we would be sending people to kind of further a ministry some other place and we would lose them and we would lose their giving. And a hundred people went and Bridgeway is doing awesome. They're up to about 150 people. James is doing a great job. They're reaching people we would have never met or reached. Uh, In terms of a kingdom perspective, it's great. And we had planned to lose some of that giving. We just didn't realize how much and how long it would take to make that up. So that's really the reason we're behind. But you know, if I had to make that decision again, I would do it in a heartbeat because it was the right decision, the right thing to do. And I think God's hand is in that. And I think he'll be faithful. It's just, we stepped out with some risk. We stepped out into the arena of faith. And and now we need to pray and rely on God and see what he he does. 
Um, and the third reason um, I'm challenged is because I really believe it's an opportunity. In, in a number of ways, it's an opportunity for staff to really sharpen our pencil and figure out um, what are we doing that's effective, where are we spending money where we shouldn't, and we've cut a significant amount in the, out of next year's budget, and that's been a hard but good exercise for us. Um, but it's also an opportunity. Do you know, we took a survey, and 50% of the people who come to Waterstone came here in the last five years, okay, which is cool. But what that means is when you come to another church, you, you, you kind of have to decide at some time um, whether it's them or it's us. What I mean, you go from seeing it as them, and is this going to be my place? Is it going to be us? And it goes from Waterstone being an it to Waterstone being, oh, this is my church. And you step into that, and suddenly everything changes when, when, when it becomes us instead of them and, and, and my church instead of it. Um, and this is one of those opportunities for people to step up into that. Because when then we have a challenge, it's not Nick's challenge or the staff's challenge or its challenge or Waterstone. It's, oh, that's my truth. That's my challenge. And, and how is God calling me to participate in that? And I think that's a great thing. A great thing to do. If this is your church, we have a challenge together to pray about and to give to. And uh, I know Barb and I are wrestling with what we're going to do this year. Um, and what can we afford to do? And how can we sacrifice a bit to, to, to meet the challenge? And that's a good thing for us um, to wrestle with how we're using uh, what God's blessed us with for his kingdom. I happen to think, <laughs> I'm a church guy, right? I spent 30 years in the church. But the reason for that is I believe the church really is the hope of the world. That the impact a, a church like Waterstone makes it, for the kingdom it is incredible. And, and investing in that is a great place to invest with your time, with your energy, with your gifts, and with your money. I, I just think you can't find a better investment from a kingdom perspective. So I think it's an opportunity. So all that means is I would love for you to pray this week about what God might have you do as we kind of step forward in faith to see what he does. Okay? Be good. Let's pray. Father, I'm uh, excited this morning about the passage we get to wrestle with because it, it looks at such a, an essential part of our faith and it's challenging. Um, Lord, I know it, it's been convicting to me as I've wrestled with it and, and, and realizing how much I want to experience your presence more in my life. And I pray that we, we'd grab a hold of that as individuals this morning as your church and, and maybe in some ways we haven't before. So we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. The year is 386. There's a young man named Augustine who is a professor of rhetoric. He's actually a brilliant, brilliant scholar. And he is on the search for love. Not your typically kind of uh, romantic love. He is looking to be embraced by something bigger than himself. And his search has been promiscuous in a sense. I mean, he's gone from woman to woman to woman, from city to city to city, from philosopher to philosopher to philosopher. It's all, almost uh, like he's been on this brothel tour looking to, for something larger than himself to fill up this, this void in his heart and in his life. And in 386, he comes to the conclusion that it's all been for vain. He actually is staying at a friend's villa, and he's distraught, and he decides to go out into the garden of the villa. And he's out there, a, a storm blows into his soul, and it brings up, in his words, just a, a rain of tears, and he's weeping. And as he's weeping, he hears this child singing, and the child sings uh, take lege, which in Latin means take and read. And Augustine believes that that moment God is speaking to him. So he finds a Bible and he opens it up and he comes to this passage in Romans, Romans 13. And he reads these words, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, 
not in quarreling and jealousy, rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Augustine at the moment is convinced that God is speaking to him and confronting his lifestyle because he was guilty of all those. Uh, he had lived a life of incredible promiscuity sexually. He, he, he debauched, trying to find pleasure in every place he could. And even the quarreling and jealousy. I mean, if you're around scholars, they love to argue and he loved to argue. I mean, he was just trying to find life in all the places you can't find life. And, and, and here God is confronting him and say, Augustine, it's me. It's in me. Put on Jesus. And suddenly he has this conversion and he sees it as a conversion of love, and he experiences the presence of God in his life, and it changes him. He later writes a book called The Confessions, and in The Confessions, he writes about this experience in this passage, and I think it's just a beautiful passage. Um, he writes, you pierced my heart with your love, and I fell in love with you. Late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. Lo, you were within, but I outside, seeking there for you, and upon the shapely things you have made, I rushed headlong, I misshapen. He's saying, I, I thought I'd find you in your creation, and I was looking for it to satisfy me, but I was so broken, it, it never worked, and it never does. He goes on, but you called shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasped. And now I pant for you. I tasted you. And I hunger and thirst. You touched me. And I burn for your peace. This was a life-changing moment for Augustine. And not only for Augustine, but as he wrote about it, he kind of changed the framework of how people began to understand the Christian life. They began to understand it as a conversion to love, as a, a, a conversion to this commune with God, this unity with him, this experience of his love in their life. And that understanding of the Christian faith lasted for the next thousand years. I mean, this was a significant event. And I think Augustine was on to something. Um, I think in all of us, uh, um, there is a void that we want to fill. And the only thing actually will fill it is God. But we get our loves disordered. We think something else will. And Augustine wrote that we, God, created us, God created us for himself. And we will not rest until we're filled with him. And he was absolutely right. I think all of us have this longing in us to experience the presence of God in our lives, to, to, to know him intimately uh, in ways that go beyond just a head knowledge that goes into every fiber of our being. It was interesting. They did a survey of people who had left church and asked them, what would it take for you to return? These are people who had given up on church. And they gave a bunch of answers. But you know what the number one answer they gave? If we could find a church that would teach us how to know and experience the reality of God in our lives, we would come, we would come back. You see, I, I think that that's true. There, there's this longing for something to be, to be embraced by something bigger than ourselves. Well, we're in a series uh, called When God Visits. It's an Advent series. Advent means appearing. So we're working our way towards what Larry called the big V, the big visit. And we thought a way to do that would be to look at little Vs, little visits. Uh, theophanies. A theophany is an appearing of God. Theos and phonos. Phonos means light or appearing. So theophany is an appearing of God. And one of the fun things about that is... Um, we decided we'd just pick passages that we, we like or we want to preach on that are theophanies. So Larry spoke on Daniel last week, and I'm speaking on Exodus chapter 33. I've never spoken on it before, but I, I was listening to a message by a man named Greg Thomas, pastor in Virginia, on this passage. 
And it just wrecked me. And I thought, I, I've never looked at that passage before. I've never wrestled with what he's talking about in this way. And it just, it just floored me. And I said, I, I, want, I, want, I want to study that and share that. So I stole a bunch of stuff from him. And I, I began to read a bunch of stuff by Tim Keller. He's talked on this. And that was, Tim Keller's always brilliant and helpful. So I stole some of his stuff. And then I started talking to, to people in Waterstone about it. And you guys gave me brilliant insight. Uh, um, so not much of what I'm going to say this morning is my stuff, but it's your stuff and other people's stuff. I think it's good stuff. Um, not my stuff. Okay. But, but it's worth, it's probably why it's good stuff. Anyway. <laughs> so I want to look at Exodus chapter 33. What I want to do is to go through the passage and explain it and then jump out of that at the end and give us three applications maybe we can wrestle with in our lives, okay? Uh, Let me give you some background, context. Exodus 32, how many of you have seen the Ten Commandments? Charlton Heston, come on. If you've seen the Ten Commandments, you understand chapter 32. It's that place where they build the golden calf, all right? And Moses, Charlton Heston, comes down and is angry and breaks the Ten Commandments, and God is angry. And actually, Moses intervenes because God wants to destroy the people. Moses intervenes, and because Moses intervenes, God decides to forgive them. That's 32. We pick it up in chapter 33, and this is what happens. Excuse me a minute. I'm getting over a cold. Um, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites and Amorites and Hittites and Perizzites and Hevites and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. (laughs) Now, God is not capricious, uh, you know... Uh, oh, I'm going to destroy you right now. I mean, he, he is holy, okay? And, and basically what he's saying, he says, you know, living in an intimate relationship with you is not working too well because you keep trampling on it. And, and if I continue to live in your presence because you're so broken, you're so stiff-necked, I will end up destroying you. So I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to give you everything you want, the promised land, man milk and honey and military success and economic success. But an angel's going to do it, not me. Doesn't sound like a terrible deal. Notice how they respond. When the people heard these things, these distressing words, they began to mourn. And no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites you are stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you and I'd take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Why are they so distressed? You, You see, these people knew what it was like to be in the presence of God. And when you've had that experience and that is taken away, it leaves an incredible ache in your soul. I, I think actually that is one of the things that prompted their idolatry back in chapter 32. You know, Moses had been leading them. They've seen the theophany of the fire at night, the cloud during the day. They're being fed. Suddenly Moses disappears. And it's almost like when Moses is gone, God disappeared and he's gone for 40 days. And they're thinking, uh-oh, I don't like this. We, we need somebody to lead us. We need God in our midst. Let, let's, let's build a calf. We, we know those gods. At least we'll have something. They had this incredible ache for the presence of God in their midst. So when God says, hey, I'm going to give you an angel and you're going to get all the stuff you want, but you're not getting me, they're devastated. They are. And it's because they understand that experiencing the presence of God is really what life is all about. Look at Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, 3 and 4. He writes this. He says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have an understanding to know me. You you know what Jeremiah is saying? He's saying, look, 
You can win five gold medals in the Olympics. You can be a guy on Wall Street or a woman on Wall Street and, and make $30 million year after year after year after year after year. You can be the smartest, wisest man in the world, the foremost intellect, the best scholar, write all kinds of books, be the person who advises the president. You can do all of that. But if you don't know me, it's not worth anything. Nothing. That's a very convicting verse for me because I think, I know I do, and I think we do get our loves disordered. We forget that life at its essence is about a relationship with God and knowing Him and that everything else fades in comparison to that. Everything else is second. Now their response is kind of interesting. They take off their ornaments. And, And you think, why are they doing that? Well, remember, they came out of Egypt So the only way they could take wealth out of Egypt was in terms of gold and jewelry. So for them in their culture at that moment in time, the way you portrayed your social status and who you were, your identity and your prestige, and in a sense, what you trusted in because it was your stuff, was your jewelry. You put on your jewelry and that in a sense identified who you are. And in a sense said, oh, that's... That's me. I'm important. And God says, take it all off. And they do because they understand. It's an act of repentance. They're saying, we get it. It's not about us. It's not about our social state. It's not about our stuff. We We can't trust in that. We only have to trust in you. It's not about where we are on the social ladder or where we fit in or what other people think about us or our prestige. It simply has to be about you. And it was a way of them repenting and saying, okay, God, it's going to be about you. So it's interesting to see what happens. Now Moses uh, used to take and pitch uh, a tent outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, this is the theophany, God appearing as a cloud, would come down and stay at the entrance. While the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Now, from one perspective, what the Israelites are getting here is the kind of religion that most Americans want, the kind of religion that most Americans like. And and that kind of religion is where you get all the stuff of life. You know, you get the promised land, you get economic prosperity, military victory, everything goes right, and you, in a sense, get God, but he doesn't have to be in the center of everything. (laughs) You know, because when he's in the center of everything, he kind of messes with things, and everything has to center around him. So this is great. You get God and all that comes with God and all the stuff and, you know, the blessing of God, but you don't have to mess with uh, maintenance of a relationship with God, you can put him on the outside of the camp. And what's really good then, you get a representative who can then go out and deal with God on your behalf. You know, and then if you get into crisis or, or stressful situation, you, you can go out and, and, and talk with God. But if everything's going good, you can just go your happy, merry way. You know, you don't have to deal with God all the time. Your representative, the, the, the religious professional can do that for you. And then, you know, you might show up at Christmas when it's a baby and it's kind of nice and convenient and easy or Easter or maybe once a month, whatever it, be, it may be, just, just so he's on the periphery. And, and for most Americans, that's how we deal with God. Keep him on the, the periphery of life. And then if life goes into crisis, we turn and go. But the rest of the time, we don't want him in the center of our lives messing with stuff. 
where everything has to center around him. And that's the religion that the Israelites are experiencing right now. Now Moses is experiencing something very different. He's going out to the tent on a consistent basis. And when he does, he encounters the very presence of God. The word for face is the Hebrew word panim. And, and it literally means before something. And, and in this passage, it's, it's translated face. Um, in other passages, in this chapter, it's translated as presence. So Moses is entering into the presence of God, seeing his face, and they're communicating. And one of the things that this word panim, face, implies is that there's a relationship, right? Because when you're in relationship to someone and you're communicating with them, you don't look at their elbow. You don't talk to their elbow or their knee. You, you look at their face, right? Because the face is the gateway. And, and, and Moses has a gateway to the face of God. So he's in God's very presence, experiencing the presence of God. He said, well, wait a second, Nick. I thought God was omnipresent. Isn't he present everywhere anyway? So what's, what's special about this? And you're right, God's omnipresence. Uh, he's present in nature. You can get a sense of that. But, but that kind of presence, when you experience it, is very vague, right? This is not a vague presence of God. This is a very personal, an experience of the personal presence of God. More real, more vibrant, more experiential. It's like the difference between knowing about sugar and tasting the sweetness of sugar. It's the difference of knowing what honey is like as it sits in the jar and taking your finger and putting it in the honey and feeling how sticky it is and then putting it on your lips. and mm, That's the difference. And Moses gets to experience that and have conversations with the God of the universe. I read this passing and go, why didn't he give us a little more description here? Because I really want to know what this is like. What, what's, what's going on? What's happening? I want to understand that. Because I want that. I would think you want that. I mean, who want, wouldn't want to, to, to be able to, to meet God face to face? Speak with him and have him speak back. Well, we get to listen into a conversation. This is the conversation. You can see uh, the, they're contrasting Moses' experience with God with the Israelites. They see God on the periphery. God, uh, Moses has him face to face. And then we get this conversation. It ties this together. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now I want you to notice something here because it's not obvious in the English. When he says my presence will go with you and when he says I know you and I found favor with you, those second person pronouns are singular. He's saying, Moses, I will be with you, Moses. I found favor with you, Moses. Moses, I will give you rest. And you'd think Moses would be thrilled with that. But he's not. Look at what he says. Then Moses said to him, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses said, being present with me, that, that's great, but that's not enough, God. I need you present with all of us, with our people, with this community. We need you in the midst. I, you cannot simply be on the periphery. How will any, and this is fascinating, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Now, now think about this. We want to experience the presence of God. And I think the reason we do, and it's not a bad reason. I mean, this will come up again in a moment. One of the reasons we do is because we think it would be cool. It would feel good. I, I mean, man, I would love to experience the presence of God and have him talk to me. That would be, be awesome. But 
that's really not Moses' primary motivation. He says, if we don't have your presence, then we won't be any different than all the other people around. There'll be nothing that's distinctive about us. And you see, he, he's not saying, oh, if we experience your presence, that gives us status and makes us special. No, no, no. When you experience God's presence, it changes you. It transforms you. It, it radicalizes your life. Everything is different. In the New Testament, we're told that Moses' face shined and he had to cover it with a veil because he was in the presence of God. I mean, this is this transformative experience. And then when you're transformed and all your life is changed, guess what? The people around you notice. And you see, part of this is Moses being on mission. He's saying, God, you called us to be this light to the Gentiles as a nation. Well, if we're going to do that, then you have to be in our midst. You have to change who we are. You have to make us distinctive and different. You have to make us a people who have you at the center of our lives, not on the periphery of our lives, that that experience communion with you and talk with you and know what it is like to be in your presence. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Isn't that interesting? See, we, we get confused. We want the experience of God and the intimacy with God for us. And Moses is saying, that's okay. But realize ultimately it's not just for you. It's for the world out there that doesn't know him, that they might know him because they see you as so different. His, his presence in our lives changes us. So then <laughs> Moses had incredible chutzpah, okay? Here's this guy meeting with God face-to-face, communicating with him, and he says to God, then Moses said, now show me your glory. And you're going, Moses, how much do you want? <laughs> I love it. And the Lord said, we'll come back and talk about what glory is. Well, glory is a word that means weight. And uh, when, when something has glory, it, it is given weight or given importance because it's essential. And, and what Moses is doing here is he's saying, God, I want to see the essence of who you are. And and from one perspective, you're going, Moses, this is an absurd request. You're a finite human being. And there's no way a finite human being can take in the infinite of God. You know, we... we (laughs) Cracks me up when people say, well, God couldn't be like that, or he can't do that, or he can't be a trinity, or he can't, or God can't be sovereign. I'm thinking, really? You finite little pygmy are going to determine who the shape and nature of God is who created the universe by speaking it? Really? Boy, are you smart. Sorry. Uh, just always cracks me up. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He's revealing his nature to, to Moses. And I will have compassion on compassion. But you cannot see my face. For no one can see me and live. Wait a second, Nick. Um, Moses has already seen his face. So how can he say he can't see his face because if anyone sees his face, he will die? Well, I don't understand all this, but I, I, I understand this. There are degrees of how much God reveals of himself. And Moses is saying, I want the whole thing. And God is said, saying, you can't handle it. You can't handle the whole thing. You, you're getting pieces. And it's interesting. You know, he's going to talk about his hand and his back. God is not this big giant, all right? These are metaphors. And the point of the metaphor is, I can show you different degrees of who I am. So in Exodus 24, the elders of Israel see the feet of God. And you go, what? what's with the feet? Well, they, they get a glimpse of his presence and his identity. Moses sees God's face in terms of the cloud and fa- talking face to face, but he wants more. And God says, I'm going to give you more. If we can put that back up, I'm going to show you this. I-, I can give you more, but not the whole thing. 
Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, my essence, who I really am, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So in a sense, Moses is saying, I want more. I want more of you. I want to see your essence. I want all of you. And God is saying, you can't handle all of me, but I can give you more. I will give you more. It's a fascinating chapter. So what do we take out of that? Let me give you three things. And all these three have to do with seeking God's fate or seeking his presence, which I think we all want. I think if we want to, to, to see God, experience his presence, we've got to want it. And I think it starts there. And I think a lot of times we don't want it because our loves get disordered and we move God to the periphery of our lives and we're just going and doing our own things and everything else becomes important to us. Yeah, he's there, but he's, he's not the thing we're after. We're after all the other stuff. Because we think that's what matters. And we want life to be comfortable. And God is really doesn't care that much how comfortable it is or how it turns out for us as long as we have him. As long as we walk through it with him. Because if we have him, that was the point from the beginning. I mean, think about this. Think of the whole story of the Bible. The whole story of the Bible is about us knowing God. Uh, um, in the very beginning... God exists as a trinity in community, three persons, one essence. And what that means is God exists in community, in this community of love where the Father and the Son and the Spirit glorify one another and commune with one another and love one another and it's this community. And out of that, God creates. Now, God does not create because he's lonely and he needs us. He doesn't, he's not lonely because he's in the trinity in this community. He creates because he wants to take the love of the community that he is experiencing and share it with his creation and allow us to become part of it. And that's what it means when we become part of it, we become part of his glory, the essence. So he creates us and and we commune with God. I mean, Adam and Eve walk and talk with God in the garden and they have this relationship and they're in the presence of God and they see his face and they talk. But then things go wrong. It's like it's not enough. They want something else. The loves, their loves get disordered and they miss that it was all about being in communion with him. And it, everything gets broken. And the whole story of the Bible is how God is reestablishing his kingdom, how he's reestablishing his rule, how he's reestablishing the relationship with his, his people. And he does that through Christ. Christ comes and dies on the cross, pays for our sin because he's repairing the brokenness, which then will allow us to be back in relationship or community with God. So Jesus says in John chapter 17 that when we believe in him, we get eternal life. But he tells us in John 17 what that eternal life is, right? This is eternal life. It's not living forever. He says, this is eternal life that you may know me. And the word therefore know is gnosko. And it's this word that that talks about not simply knowing something intellectually, but knowing it with your whole being. It's used to describe uh, sexual relationships between couples. It's that kind of intimacy, that kind of knowing. And, And Jesus is saying, this is the point. You get eternal life. You get to enter back into this relationship with me. And that's what life is all about. It's about ultimately seeing God. One of the people I was talking with in the last month was telling me about Thomas Aquinas. So I went back and read a little bit. And Thomas Aquinas was uh, a monk, Catholic monk, who lived 12th, 13th century. Brilliant, brilliant theologian. And his... His notion was that the purpose of life was the, what he called the beatific vision. 
And it was this idea that the purpose of life is to enter into communion with God. And that you get to enter into communion with God. You get the beatific vision at the end of your life. Because, and I think he's right. First Corinthians says, now we know in part, but then we shall fully know. There's a time when we get the fullness of God. But to experience that now is what really is the heart of happiness. And I ran across a little description of the beatific vision. This is a little philosophical, but if you could hang in there, it's, it's brilliant. He says, Thomas Aquinas defined the beatific vision as the human being's final end in which one attains to perfect happiness. Thomas reasons that one is perfectly happy only when all one's desires are perfectly satisfied to the degree that happiness could not increase and could not be lost. So when all your, your desires find satisfaction, then you'll be happy. So man is not perfectly happy so long as something remains for him to desire or seek. Okay, how's that relate to God? Well, listen, but this kind of perfect happiness cannot be found in any physical pleasure, any amount of worldly power, any degree of temporal fame or honor, or indeed in any finite reality. It can only be found in something that is infinite and perfect. And this is God. And since God is not a material being, but is pure spirit, we are united to God by knowing and loving him. Consequently, the most perfect union with God is the most perfect human happiness and the goal of the whole human life. He's saying, do you understand what it means to know God? To, to, to be in relationship with Jesus so that you know the, the God of the universe? That's happiness. And you see, we, we, we forget that. We don't realize that that's what we're really longing for. And we long for all these other things. We have all these longings in life. And we think if we can satisfy them, they'll make us happy. And in reality, if you, you build your life on anything but God and Christ, they won't make you happy. They'll disappoint you. It might give you a momentary pleasure. Because we're wired to desire him. So when you go to the refrigerator to... To, to get another bite and you're thinking, well, you know, I really don't need this. But you know what you're hungry for? You're not hungry for that. You're hungry for him. When you take the cap off the bottle just to pour yourself another drink and you're thinking to yourself, I, I, don't, I don't really need this. And I, you need to say to yourself, you know, that's, that's not really what I'm about. What I'm really longing for is not another drink. What I'm really longing for is him. This is just a bad substitute. When you're hooking up with that person again and you're wondering, why in the world am I doing this? The reason you're doing this is because you're longing for him. It's not about the sex or the loneliness. It's because you have a hole in your heart, in your soul that you're trying to fill and you don't know how to fill it and you think if you can get some human warmth and human touch and something that's pleasurable, then I'll be okay. And then you discover it's not true because in the end it disappoints. So when you take out your phone and you start to look at things you shouldn't or you get on your computer and you go places where you shouldn't, you got to remind yourself, that's not, that's not really what I want. What I'm longing for, what I'm hungry for, what I need, what will satisfy is Him. But our loves get disordered out of place. And we have to remind ourselves that He ultimately is a source of happiness because he is what fills us up because that's what we were created for is to be in communion with him, to see him face to face. To be in his presence. Now some of you are thinking, well, I kind of want to be in his presence. But you're so convinced that God hates you, right? Because he's perfect and you're not. That you're not so sure or when you think about being in his presence, it fills you with shame, and condemnation, it pushes that button and that tape plays in your head, you know, I'm not, God couldn't love me, I, that, that, that's not possible. And the truth is, he can, and he does. And you think, oh, no, no, Nick, he only loves me if I get all my stuff together, you know, if I have my act together, if I, uh, uh, 
And no, that's not true. That was the whole point of Jesus coming because you don't have your stuff together. You don't have your act together. You should be in shame. You are broken. But it, it doesn't matter because he comes to you in love and he sees Christ and what he's done. And now he can love you as you are. <laughs> if you go back where Moses is talking with God, do you, do you remember what it says? Moses spoke face to face with God as a friend. As a friend. And Jesus says to his disciples, I now call you friends. Why? Because he loves us and wants to be in relationship and communion and union with us. That was the whole point. The whole point of Jesus coming. It's the gift. So you got to want it. It starts there. Second, you got to work at it. You don't have to work for it. You got to work at it. And what I mean, if you look at Moses, what did he do? He, he packed up this tent. And everywhere they went, he went outside of the camp and put up a tent. You ever try to put up a tent? I mean, you know, stakes and poles and canvas and ropes. You can lose your salvation trying to put up a tent. It's, it's just ordinary hard work. It's ordinary labor. You know, we have this idea, oh, I'm going to meet with God. And when we get in this mind, we're going to this retreat center and have a nice cup of something yummy and a great spiritual devotional book and quiet. And that's where we're going to meet God. And, and Moses says, no, I meet him in the tent. So it's a lot of work, but I'm going to labor to create a space where I can meet with God. And his labor was disruptive. Do you know? He doesn't set it up next to his tent. He sets it up outside the camp. So he has to intentionally, when he goes outside the camp, he's going to go outside the camp. It's not something he does along the way. It's the destination and it's disruptive and it's labor to get there and it intrudes on his life. Ordinary disruptive labor. And it's persistent. It says every time, every time they moved, Moses thought to him, dang, I got to move the tent. Again and again and again and again and again. It's persistent. I love what Verdon Grounds used to say. He said, the ruts of routine become the grooves of grace. And I think that's true. We create routines in our lives that we're either carving out space to meet with God or not. But if we are, it's going to be inconvenient. It's going to take work. It's going to be hard work. It's going to take labor. You know what else is interesting in this passage? I don't understand this completely, but it's corporate. Do you get that? When Moses heads outside to go outside the camp into the tent, everybody comes out of their tents. They all stand and they watch. They're checking up on him. Is he going in the tent? Is he there? Is he talking to God? Come on, Moses, make sure you get all the way in. And then when he's in there, they're worshiping in their place. There's something, there's a togetherness somehow about this pursuit of the face of God. Something we do together. So it's labor, it's persistence, disruptive, it's communal. And that's the history in the scriptures that God's people always do that. I mean, you see it culminate in Jesus, right? Jesus is always going off to meet with the Father. Always. And it disrupts things. And he's not just establishing a quiet time. It's not that easy. He's doing what Moses did only to the nth degree, establishing this relationship with God and entering into communion with him. We need to work at it. We need to carve spaces into our life and we practice the disciplines of fasting and solitude and reading the scriptures and meditation. And there's pieces that that happen together, but it becomes a pursuit because we want it so much, we work at it. And if you want it that much and you work at it, then you get to experience it. Did you notice in the text how often God says, yes, Moses, I'll do that. I'll be there. I'm coming into the midst. You get to experience it. 
James chapter 4, verse 2 says that if we uh, draw close to God, he will draw close to us. Luke 11, Jesus is talking about prayer, but he says if you keep asking and you keep seeking and you keep knocking, and all those are in the present tense, so it's ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. What he says, oh, if you seek, you'll find. If you ask, it will be given. If you knock, the door will be opened. And then he follows it up with this. He says, what human father, if his son asks him for a fish, will give him a snake? If he asks him for an egg, will give him a rock? How much more will your father give you the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit? The very presence of God. He's saying, if you want it and you work at it, you will get it. And you're saying, well, Nick, that's not my experience. Well, maybe it should be our experience. Maybe it's not our experience because we don't work at it, don't desire it, don't carve the place into our lives for it. Somebody came up to me after last service. It says, so if I do that, will, will, will God talk to me? And I said, maybe. Might. Look at the history of God's people, the litany of lovers who have experienced the presence of God in just amazing ways. You can begin with Augustine and then go to Aquinas or Brother Lawrence or, or St. John of the Cross or, or Teresa of Avila or John Owen, or John Calvin, or John Wesley, or Jonathan Edwards. I mean, that's the history of God's people. If you seek it, God says, yeah, it can be yours. So I have a challenge. My challenge is for the next 40 days, pray. Ask God for his glory. Ask him to show you his face. Ask to be in his presence. And not only ask for yourselves, but ask it for Waterstone as well. And let's see what he does. Shall we? Let's pray. Father, we... we (laughs) We're just a people who want you, uh, want you in our lives, want your presence, want to see your face, want to communicate, want to know you and have you change us in incredible, amazing ways because we live in the presence of God. Would you make that true for us and make that true for your church? We pray. Amen. We're going to end by taking the Lord's Supper because I think we always need to be reminded the reason we have access to the presence of God is because of Jesus Christ. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves of that truth. It's interesting to me that God tells Moses, I'm going to put you on the rock and in the cleft of a rock and I'm going to put my hand over you then I'm going to pass by and you'll come out and see my back and see my glory. And that rock becomes a type of Christ. The reason we get to see the glory of God is because we're in the rock of Jesus Christ. And when we take communion this morning, we're reminding ourselves of that reality, that it is Jesus Christ who gives us eternal life, Jesus Christ who gives us the ability to know God.